Jonah. Quick review. God said go. Jonah said no. Was on the boat. There's the contrast between the sailors worshiping or calling out to God, Jonah not calling out to God. Then he gets cast overboard. Then he does call out to God. And now we come to chapter 3, right after the fish has vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So let's read verses 1 through 4. You can read Jonah 3, 1 to 4. Grace, thank you. All right, so anything significant from verse 1? Jonah's listening, or at the very least, God's speaking to him, okay? What else? Jonah got a second chance, okay? What else? What does it tell us about God? Kind of tied to what Norma said. God is a God of forgiveness, compassion, things like that, mercy. Did Jonah deserve a second chance? Not really. Did he, um, was he a very good prophet? No. Um, I think it should be both a thing that gives us hope and also serve as a warning, right? It should give us hope. Because to the extent that we are imperfect, God does not immediately cast us aside and forget about us. But it, also, it should also serve as a warning because Jonah is clearly not the hero of this story. Right? So, uh, verse 2. What is God's word? Which was? Okay. Get up and go. What does he call Nineveh? What does he call Nineveh? Great city. A great city. Okay. Um, and it probably not great in terms of like amazing and wonderful, but great in terms of size. The reason I'm going to say that is what we see in verse 3. And what does God tell him to say? Well, that's what he's going to say. What does God in verse 2 say to say? Whatever I tell you. Okay? What is the job of a messenger or an ambassador? Okay, yes. Yeah, speak on behalf of the person who sent you. Can you say your own message? No. Can you not give the message? No. You have to speak the message exactly as it's told to you. Um, the reason this is important, really quick New Testament aside, there are people who will say, like Paul talks about and says he doesn't do in First and Second Corinthians, there are people who will say, you know what, we need to finesse this a little bit because otherwise nobody's going to accept the message because it's not a message people want to hear. Let's change the message a little bit. 
let's change the way that we give the message. Um, and we want to make this about like, I don't know, mm, we want to make this about liberal churches sometimes, or we want to make it about this and the other thing. But the reality is conservative churches have been in the business of repackaging the message for a good long while, right? For example, skits and musicals are not inherently evil, but they are not the designated message of giving the gospel. I want to be careful with this because I don't think the Bible forbids, how do I put it? I don't think the Bible forbids any illustration of stories from the Bible or something like that. However, there is a certain point at which we need to be careful of violating the principle of the second commandment in terms of how we're representing God. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, um, if in the screw tape letters where this supposedly like elder demon is instructing the younger demon how to tempt people, he says, if, I, if you can get them to focus on their imagination about what God is like, then your work is done. He said, there's a particular person that I got to basically believe, like his God was essentially a point on the wall, a foot down and three feet over from his bed. And he looked at that point and that was like, the, the, like his connection with God was this point or this object or this image, right? Or it's the picture you see in a Sunday school book or whatever else. To the extent that that becomes the focus, the further we move away from the simple proclamation of the, the words and ideas of Scripture to trying to represent God when we cannot represent God, that's when we start to violate the principle of the second commandment. So the job of the messenger is to say the message exactly as it was given and not to fail to give the message. All right, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. Verse 3, what does he do? He arose and went to Nineveh. So now he's actually doing what God said to do. Okay? How is Nineveh described? Okay, why? That's true, Sandra, but why is it exceedingly great? Three days walk. Now the three days walk... Uh, potentially is around the outside of it. Here's why I'm saying that. Jonah apparently hits most of the city proclaiming the message, walking one day straight through, right? But going around the outside, theoretically, something like a three days walk. Um, now, does that mean you had to walk continuously the whole way? Does that mean it's a hundred miles long? Um, there's a possibility he's using the idea of three days walk, kind of like they would say, like, here's the allowable amount to walk on a given day or expected amount to walk on a given day. The bottom line is this is a very large city, right? So, Jonah arises and went according to the word of the Lord. He's obeying what God told him to do. Then he starts to go through verse 4. What does he say? Right. What do we tend to do with what Jonah says? Here. Okay, in what way, Retta? 
So what do we tend to think is happening here? Or at least, I don't know if you guys have thought this. This is the way that I sometimes view this passage. Bob? He's warning them if they don't repent, then they'll be destroyed. Okay. Let me, let me ask my question even more specifically. Is he obeying verse 2? We, say, we tend to say no, but God said, Arise and go. He arises and goes according to the word of the Lord. <clears throat> then he goes and proclaims. It's possible that he had come up with his own message, but... I think, you know, we tend to make this big deal like he should have said, and God will forgive you. He should have said, and God loves you. He should have said, and whatever else. I think it's quite possible, given the message that God gave to the various prophets, that Jonah is, in fact, in verse 4, proclaiming the message that God told him to proclaim, right? But what we tend to do is try to read between the lines and say, oh, well, he left some of it out, or he changed it, or whatever else. Do you see where I'm going with this? How many of you have thought, Jonah didn't say what God told him to say. Because I know I've thought that, right? But, the, but if the parallel holds true with the trend of the story from verses 1 through 4, he goes where God tells him to go, he does what God tells him to do, he says what God told him to say. I can't say that 100% absolutely, but that seems to be the trend of the story. Any, any thoughts on that real quick before we move on to the next thing? Bob? So... We only have this one phrase, is it possible he said more than that? Yes. Okay, what else? Sarah? Oh, don't raise your hand when you clear your throat. You're going to get called on. <laughs> yes, Devin. Okay. I, what, what translation is that out of curiosity? Nasby. Is it a like a study Bible or is it a study Bible? It's just a like little page. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh look, mine has it too. I couldn't see it because I was standing here relative to the podium. So, all right. So sometimes Hebrew it doesn't trans translate one to one to English. Um, so, for example, there's a verse in Proverbs that says something like, the pressing of the nose brings forth blood. We have to say, well, what, what's the point of that, right? So the NIV would do something that would say something like, mm, somebody who won't shut up when there's trouble is like picking at your nose until it bleeds. Like it, it might do, or that probably, that's probably the New Living Translation, to be fair, right? <laughs> The NIV would be somewhere in between. The NASB would just like transliterate it, right? So if it says a great city to God, uh, I think we would want to be careful about saying it's not like, like the thing that we do with John 3.16 sometimes. You've probably heard people do this. God so loved the world, right? The word so there means in this way, right? It's not God got so touchy-feely with the people of Nineveh that it was a great city to him and he just, he just wanted them to live their best life now, right? But in context, God has a significant degree of compassion toward the people of Nineveh and cares for them, right? So we could take it in that sense as long as we don't push it too far. Um, but at the very least, we have a city that is large and a city that is full of people who are going their own way apart from God. So yes, to Bob's point, it's possible that Jonah said more than is recorded here, 
But I think that we tend to say Jonah disagreed with God's message. I don't think we can say that. Norma? Right. Um, what do we, why does Jonah's message, why do we, what's one reason we might assume that it's not the right message? Brayden? Okay. Um, okay, that's a possibility. Jonathan? Sure. But to be fair, if he really didn't want them to repent, that's the part of the message he shouldn't have given, right? <laughs> right? Because that's the part of the message that's going to be most urgent. That's the part of the message that they most need to hear, right? Bob? The confusing part to me is <clears throat> if that is all he said. Why do they have the verse 5 response? Sure. Do they know he's a messenger from God? Does he know? Do they know he's a prophet? He's just some guy that smells like fish guts walking through the city. He looks like he's been bleached. Yeah, or whatever. Right. So, so um, yeah, those are fair questions. So let's go ahead and read five through nine. Who wants to read five through nine? Let me rephrase that. Bob, go ahead. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of, uh, to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, bird, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Yeah, so 5 through 9 seems to imply that there's more to the message, right? It seems to imply that God is using his spirit and conscience and other things like there's special and general revelation going on, because we could say by conscience they could know that what they were doing was wrong, right? But the idea that there is God and he has burning anger and this is his prophet and all those sorts of things, that probably requires special revelation, right? Like God directly sending a message. So it seems like verse 4 is probably the summary of the message and verses 5 through 9 get at more of what's going on. What's the contrast between verse 5 and how Jonah starts out the story? Did Jonah believe God when he said, you need to go do this? No. Did Jonah obey God? Did he respond immedi immediately? No. So we have the sailors at the end of chapter 2 and the Ninevites in chapter 3 responding basically immediately. We have Jonah in chapter 2, as he's drowning, turns to God, does what God says at the beginning of chapter 3, still seems to have, according to chapter 4, things in his heart, but we don't know that yet. We tend to want to jump there because we've read the whole book, right? But according to the story, we don't know yet what's going on in Jonah's heart. But we have in 5 and 6, or at least in 5, 
They call a fast, they put on sackcloth, all of them, right? Because they believe in God. So there's sort of this widespread movement of repentance in response to the message of judgment. Here's the other irony. What's going on in Israel at this point? See, this is the fascinating thing. The people of Israel thought the people of Assyria were the worst people on the face of the earth beyond God's redemption. And then God brings those people to repentance while the people of Israel refuse to repent. And there's a whole bunch of lessons in that that we ought to think about. I don't think we have time for them because I think I've got eight minutes left. Um, we'll come back to it at the end if there's time. The king himself, in contrast to, say, Nebuchadnezzar, this king gets off his throne, takes off his royal robe, puts on sackcloth, and sits on ashes on the ground, presumably. And then he issues a proclamation, kind of like Nebuchadnezzar does after God humbles him. Don't eat anything. And, and here's the fascinating thing. Why does he extend it to animals? It's going to come up again in the back in uh, chapter 4, verse 11, when he says, as well as many animals. But why does the king extend it to animals, do you guys think? First answer, the text doesn't say. Second thing is, why possibly, Jonathan? Okay, so it could be some parallel to like what goes on in India. Bob? Um, maybe. So the question that I ask is, did, how did they know, when did they know about God? Yeah. Did they know beforehand? Yeah. And now it's like, oh, we yeah. messed up, right? Right. Or is this all brand new revelation? Sure. It, it seems like the king is just saying, you know what? This God means business. We need to cover all, cover all the bases, bases, pull out all the stops. Okay. Braden, what were you going to say? Yeah. Okay. All right. So then he says, but then verse 8 is, uh, verse 8 is really fascinating, right? What does verse 8 say? Yeah, I'm thinking more of the, the second part of the verse, though, because that part is significant, but the second part of the verse, let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. That's very much like language of the prophetic message, right? That's like the consistent thing. Think about what we're going through in Hosea. God reproves them for the violence, says turn away from the violence, repent, like all these things, and they didn't pay attention. And then, seemingly, one message from a single prophet comes to the people of Assyria, and there's this widespread repentance. And what's the hope? Verse 9. that God would relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Which kind of parallels uh, what the sailors are doing in chapter 1, right? 
They're like, we want to escape God's anger. We don't think that throwing this guy overboard is the solution, but we don't want to die either. What's God's response in verse 10? Okay. So God saw their works, that they repented, and then it says God relented about the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So, this is a favorite passage of open theists to say, hey, you know what? God didn't see it coming, so he had to change his mind. Is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? No. Um, why do people want a God who changes his mind in the way that I just described? Braden? Yeah, we want to be... Okay, we want to be Greeks and Romans and Norsemen. Our gods are a little bit better than us, but not much. Because then, what can you do if your God is only a little bit stronger than you? Okay, you can get away with stuff. What else? You can appeal to them and say, well, you're not that better than me, so... Okay. Or, going to a lot of the mythology, you can fight them. Like, if there's enough of you, and the God is only as strong as 20 men, you get 25 men, you're going to beat him, Right? You have a God who controls everything and created everything. You don't stand a chance against him, and the only reasonable response is obedience, right? Um, there's also this element of, uh, mm, I think, pride in wanting to discover a new thing so that we can make a name for ourselves that happens sometimes in academic circles and just broadly in the church. Innovation in theology tends to be heresy. I think that's an important thing to remember. I don't mean sometimes you may discover new things like, mm, like I think I told you guys I was reading through something in the Gospels and I was thinking about the Israelites and I was thinking about Jesus' temptations and I think I always thought that it was, um, I think I always thought that it was parallel to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and there are themes of that, but I think there's also parallels to Moses going up and praying for 40 days, right? So that's something that was new to me, but that's not coming in something new in the Bible. That's something that is just like, I hadn't seen that before. There's a difference between just discovering what's there and trying to change what's there. So, um, so what does this tell us about God's character? Verse 10 in particular. What is God's like? What is God's character like? What do you think, Elise? Hang on one second. What do you think, Elise? What is God like? You know, Ben. Okay. Yeah. That's patient. Okay. Yeah. So there, at the very least, we don't know all of what Jonah said, right? 
But at the very least, there seems to be this implied condition, if you repent, I will not do the thing, right? And that seems to hold true throughout Scripture. And that's important for us to note because I think it's easy for us to say something like, and we talked about this in Hosea as we have these increasingly harsh responses by God and increasingly stubborn persistence in sin by the Israelites. I think we tend to get to this point where we think, I've already gone this far. There's what hope is there? It, nothing will change anyway. What's the point of repentance, right? But if God has a disposition of compassion and forgiveness when there is repentance, doesn't mean all the consequences go away. Doesn't mean that the judgment is always averted. Doesn't mean all of those sorts of things. But the fact that God will forgive and sometimes turn aside, I think the people of Assyria here demonstrate a better theology than the people of Israel in a lot of their history. Any other thoughts here on chapter 3 as we wrap up in the last two minutes here? Norma? God will change us if we repent? Okay. What else? Devin? Sandra? Um, I want some safety on this. I was taught that when God speaks, you disobey. But when you continue to disobey, that's rebellion. Say, say that again for me, because I think I might have missed something. If God speaks and you disobey, then it's just disobedience. But if you continue, it's rebellion? Uh, I think a parallel that comes to mind is people are like, well, mm, I remember hearing this a lot, like as a teenager, like a youth group age, like if you're a guy and you see a pretty woman on a sign and you look once just because you're driving down the road, that's not sin, but if you look back again, then that's lust. I mean, maybe that kind of parallels what you're saying. I think if we're exploring the line when something crosses over from temptation to sin, maybe, but any to any degree that we're not doing what God has told us to do, it's rebellion. I think the question is you can have intentional rebellion or unintentional rebellion. It's still rebellion, but I think the consequence and the the degree to which God responds and and tearing down the pride of someone who persists in it, I think that escalates the further you continue. Does that Okay. All right, we're going to wrap up right there. Um, let's pray, and then we will uh, head in and get set up for the practice and for the service. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these truths from Jonah. pray that you will help us to ponder them. I pray that even in the mercy that you showed to the people of Assyria, we would see the connection to the mercy that you showed us through Jesus in the things that we are remembering today. Pray that you would be honored by our remembering of them and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.